Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. All right, good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you. I'm going to add two announcements here, if you would. You have a, uh, like a golden colored paper there. Would you mind taking a moment and looking at that? In John chapter 15, Jesus said, Abide in me and I in you. And that's uh, a command. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. John chapter 15. Now, during our study of the book of Matthew, multiple times now, uh, at least three different times, I've mentioned to you, all right, so here's how you do that, whatever I'm referring to. I said, you, you do that by abiding in Christ. And, and so I think we hear that and we think, yeah, all right, now what do I do? You know, how do, how do I exactly abide in Christ? You told me to abide in Christ. What exactly does that mean? Well, we have a resource that we have made available at the bookstore. It's called Abide in Christ. It's a fantastic resource that was written by a guy named Andrew Murray. Um, this month, we're making another resource available to you. It's the same book, but it was divided up. So maybe it had like 12 chapters before. Now it's divided up into 31 devotional thoughts that are about four pages in length. And so it's called Abide in Christ, the 31-day devotional for fellowship with Jesus. And I wanted to read to you the purpose that the author wrote this book, because I think it's significant. And certainly worth three, four minutes, okay? Not the reading, but this conversation. This is his, in the preface, Andrew Murray said, It is with the desire to help those that have not yet fully understood what the Savior meant with his command, or who have feared that it was a life beyond their reach, that these meditations are now published. It is only by frequent repetition that a child learns its lessons. It is only by continuously fixing the mind for a time on someone, someone of the lessons of faith, that the believer is gradually helped to take and thoroughly assimilate them. I have the hope that to some, especially young believers, it will be a help to come and for a month, day after day, spell over the precious words, abide in me. All right, so fantastic resource. Um, I've read the book itself a number of times and now I'm going through this devotion and I'm just really blessed by it again. So I'd encourage you, pick it up. It's $6. All right, it's not too much money. Um, certainly, it's an investment, and I think it would really benefit you, and so I'd encourage you to pick up our resource of the month. The other thing that I have for you, you notice on the other yellow sheet you have there, the lighter yellow, it talks about a need for a 15-passenger van for Easter Sunday. This Easter Sunday, what we want to do coming up this Easter Sunday is we want to take a van and we want to go through Trenton and do one of two things. Essentially, find homeless people and say, hey, it's Easter, why aren't you in church? You need to get in the van now, please. And then they'll get in. We'll bring them to church. Uh, you know, just have a great opportunity for them to fellowship, meet the Lord, and, and so on. And then we're going to provide them with a lunch, which will either be like a, a nice boxed or bag lunch, or we'll, we'll have a lunch for them or something like that. And then we'll bring them back to wherever it is they want to go within the area. We're not driving them to Kentucky or something <laughs> like that. All righty. So um, if, and I bring it up now, for a couple of reasons. One, maybe you, you'd like, I'd love to be a part of something like that. All right, that's great. You can see Will or Ann at the information table. Uh, but maybe, who knows, maybe you have a 15-passenger van sitting in your driveway that, you know, you just got, you inherited it or something, and you're like, this thing is awesome. I wish I could use it for something. Um, so if you have that van, or maybe your neighbor does, or your friend, or your mom and dad have one, uh, could you let us know? Um, and we'll use it. All righty, so um, 
please, would you pray about that? And that would be awesome. Let's pray about a lot of these things that are ahead of us, okay? Father, we thank you for the gift of praying. And Lord, that we're able to come to you in prayer. Lord, uh, that you invite us to, you even command us to. And Lord, as we, uh, we think about this month ahead of us, there's certainly a lot of things to bring before you. And, and so, Father, I begin by just bringing prayer itself before you. Lord, in the season of prayer that we're about, Lord, to undergo, that you would bless it richly. Father, that these would be more than sort of us just coming, saying a bunch of things, Lord, but really that our hearts would be blended with your heart. Lord, that we would develop your heart even as we pray lord to cry out those things that uh, you desire for us to be lifting up to you in prayer lord bless the season of prayer this year beginning lord in a couple of weeks father we pray for the night of worship lord that that would be if you will a heavenly time lord that your spirit would inhabit the praises of your people and that you would minister through us lord and certainly to us Draw us, Lord God, into your presence that evening and prepare our hearts even for it now. Father, we pray for Good Friday and our communion service. We pray, Lord, for Easter Sunday services. Lord, that the word as it goes forth, Lord, as your saints gather and that the joy of our salvation would be evident. And Lord, I pray for those that are going to join us that Sunday morning that are perhaps family or friends, maybe some of these homeless folks, maybe people that haven't been to church since last Easter. Lord, I pray that being in the presence of the saints would draw folks to you as well. Lord, as the word goes forth, that the power of the resurrection would be experienced in this place and that you'd minister powerfully on those sets of days. And Father, we pray for our youth and we're grateful for them. And so we pray your blessing on their retreat next month. Lord, bring a lot of kids, we pray, from our church and from this community. Bless the interactions. Bless the word as it goes forth. I pray you would bless the conversation sitting around a, a cafeteria table with their peers and with the staff. Lord, that you would minister powerfully, that good things would happen in the hearts of our young people. And so we commit those guys to you as well. And we commit our time this morning. Lord, bless the study of your word. Minister to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please keep praying for these things, okay? We are in Matthew chapter 9. So you can turn there in your Bibles. We've been in Matthew 9, I think now, seven weeks. And our goal is to finish this chapter uh, today. And so we're going to pick up where we left off in verse 27. Now, uh, you may be there, you may not be, but verse 27, it begins and it says, as Jesus passed on from there. And so the idea is that the, the story continues, the uh, scenario that we've been looking at continues. The there that is being referred to is actually the ruler of the synagogue's house. And we saw last week, or you could look back and look at those couple of verses, we saw that it was at that house that Jesus healed the daughter of the home that she had actually just died and Jesus brought her back to life. And so this is not the first event which we're going to read about of this day. It's actually more toward the last event of this day. It has been a very busy day for Jesus. Let me run through some of the things. In this day, going all the way back to chapter 8, verse 18, I think it is. In this day, Jesus had a time of teaching. 
He healed a paralytic, which you remember was lowered down through the roof. He called Matthew to come follow him. There was an instance where there was sort of, today we might call it like a media throng, everyone pressing in around Jesus as he tried to go from point A to point B. He participated in, and I'm sure he enjoyed, a feast. There was more teaching time. Then there was another media throng as he moved on to the next place. Then there was a healing of a woman that had been sick for 12 years, and then Jesus raised somebody from the dead. That's quite a day, isn't it? But the day's not over. For as the chapter continues, we're going to see that Jesus is going to restore sight to a couple of blind men. He's going to deliver someone from demon oppression. And no doubt there were other interruptions that took place here and there um, in his day because Jesus' life was really just about dealing with interruptions and responding to them as ministry opportunities. And so here as we begin verse 27, we have the next interruption in Jesus' day. And this involves two blind men that were following Jesus. Now we read their story starting in verse 27. And verse 27 says, Now as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him. And crying aloud, they said, Have mercy on us, son of David. And when he entered the house, the blind men came to him. And Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. And then he touched their eyes, saying, Well, according to your faith, then, be it done unto you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and they spread his fame all throughout that district. So two blind men. Now, I'm not sure if you ever have taken notice of this, but it seems that there are a whole lot of instances in the Bible involving folks that are blind. And I'm not talking about spiritual blindness, which the Bible talks about and references, the inability to see something spiritually. It talks about spiritual blindness all the time. Really, that's what Israel's problem was, it says often again, time and time again in the Old Testament. But what I'm talking about is physical blindness. It seems it comes up a lot in the scriptures. In fact, one researcher, and I I didn't take the time myself to count it up and to confirm it. I'm just going to trust the guy on this one because really it's not that big of an issue. But one researcher, he counted up that there are 54 different mentions of physical blindness that are scattered throughout the Bible, and many of those are found in the Gospels. Now, in our nation, certainly we have cases of physical blindness or cases of vision impairment, but it's actually, relatively speaking, somewhat rare in the United States. About 2% of folks in the United States suffer either from physical blindness or vision impairment. But the number is quite a bit higher, however, in third world nations. And it's been described as being, quote, very prevalent in the East for a number of different reasons. Some of those being the hot sun itself, dust particles, sand, unsanitary practices, even flies landing on someone with the disease and spreading that to someone else. And so it shouldn't surprise us then that throughout the Gospels, we see as many references as we do to either this phrase, Jesus went through healing the blind, or the account itself of him interacting with somebody that was blind. It shouldn't surprise us, because in reality, they were living in third world conditions. Now, I would suggest to you that's significant. It's very significant that we see so many references to the healing of the blind in the Gospels. 
There's a messianic prophecy in the Old Testament. It's found in the book of Isaiah. There's a few, actually. But in Isaiah chapter 29, in that messianic prophecy, it is declared to us that a unique characteristic of the Messiah would be his ability to give sight to the blind. So Isaiah 29, 18 says, In that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. Now you can read that and you say, well, that's spiritual. Yes, I know. Isaiah chapter 42 goes on, talks about some other things. Now, in your Bible, I don't know if your Bible lists headings in your Bible. They're not in the original Bible. They're put there by the publisher of your Bible to help you get an idea of what the chapter is about and so on. Many of our Bibles, the top of Isaiah chapter 42, is going to say something about the Lord's servant or the Lord's chosen servant. And it's a messianic prophecy. It's about the Messiah. And Isaiah 42, 1, it says, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. So Isaiah 42, verse 1 makes it clear, we're talking about the Messiah. We're talking about the Christ. Now, continuing a few verses later in that chapter, it says this, I am the Lord, notice all caps, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness, I will take you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes of the blind and to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. So the Lord, all caps, speaking to the Lord, just capital L, making it clear that among the marks of the ministry of the Messiah will be the opening of the eyes of the blind. Do you remember in the New Testament when John the Baptist was put in prison? And John calls some of his followers to him and he says, hey, you know what, I need you to do me a favor. Go to Jesus and I need you to ask him a question. John was in prison, he himself couldn't go there. It's found in Matthew chapter 11. We haven't read and done Matthew 11 yet as a group, so you may not even know the story. Or maybe you've read through the Gospels before and you are a little bit familiar with it. But John's in prison. Herod Antipas had put him in prison for speaking out against him. And it's while he's there, as I said, he calls some disciples to himself and he says, go ask Jesus this question. Let me read it for you. This is from Luke. It says, now when the men had come to him, that is Jesus, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, are you the one who is to come or should we look for another? And Jesus answered them, will you go tell John this? That sounds kind of rude. Um, sorry, I worded it that way. Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the good news preached to them. Now notice in that list there from Luke chapter 7, the thing that Jesus points to as a testimony of who he is, his credentials, so to speak. Notice how he points to the fact that the blind received their sight that was part of his credentials as the messiah and so with all of that in mind we go back to our passage for today in which it tells us that two men are following jesus specifically two blind men are following after jesus and notice it says they're crying out son of david have mercy on us now that's a peculiar thing for them to be calling out particularly in light of the fact that jesus as far as everybody knew is the son of joseph not the son of David. I'm the son of Charlie. You know, if somebody is trying to get my attention and saying, son of Bill, son of Bill, or whatever, I'm not going to respond. And they're like, hey, I've been talking to you. I've been calling you the son of Bill. I'm like, well, I'm sorry. My dad's name is Charlie. So it's a peculiar thing for them to be calling the son of David. 
And so we have to ask the question, why are they calling him the son of David? Well, the phrase the son of David, it's a term used about 130 times in the Bible. 18 times it's used in the New Testament. A few of those times, maybe 10 of those 130 times, it's referring to Solomon, the son of David, who went on to become the king. It's literally talking about the son of David, a few of those times. But the vast majority of those times, it's used as a pseudonym for the Messiah, who the scripture makes very clear would be a descendant of the great king of Israel, King David. And so to refer to someone as the son of David is to confess your understanding of that person as the Messiah or as the Christ. Now let me just make an aside here. Messiah and Christ, they mean the exact same thing. They're both transliterations of uh, the original language, Messiah going back to the Hebrew, Christ going back to uh, the Greek. So both of those mean the same thing. God's anointed one, God's chosen one, the servant that he would send to accomplish his purposes. And so if you called someone the son of David, you are saying in your mind, they are the Christ, they are the Messiah. And so that's what these two men are doing. When they call out to Jesus as the son of David and they're asking him to have mercy on them, they're saying, you're the Christ, you can do this. Now, this is not the first time, though, that Matthew has referred to Jesus as the son of David or written for us that somebody else referred to him as the son of David. The very first reference to Jesus as the son of David in this book is found in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. So the very first verse of this book, Matthew says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Remember, Matthew's entire purpose for writing this book is to demonstrate to his Jewish readers. Now, you can read it. You're not a Jew. Go ahead. You can read it, too. But it was to demonstrate to the Jewish readers that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah that they were expecting. And so it makes sense that right from the start, he said, look, I'm not pulling any punches. He's the son of David. He's the Messiah. Right from the beginning. Well, now we move on. Verse 28, the story continues. It says, now, when Jesus entered the house, the blind men they came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. And then he touched their eyes, saying, Well, then according to your faith, may it be done to you. Now, I don't know this for certain, but it seems that Jesus, you know, they're calling out to him, they're kind of causing a commotion, and it seems that Jesus says to them, Hey, guys, come here. And he pulls them inside of this house where they can kind of be alone. And then he moves forward with this conversation. I don't necessarily know that. But if you look at verse 30, it seems to lend credence to the idea. Because there it says, and their eyes were open and he warns them, see that you tell no one about this. Again, I don't know that, but it seems like he doesn't want to do something out in the public for everyone to take notice of and be wowed of. He wants to just kind of pull them aside and have this private meeting with them but either way he does do that he pulls them aside and he says do you believe that i'm able to do this and then after the response is in the infirm affirmative jesus does just that he heals them and then he says that statement according to your faith be it done unto you and once again in response to someone's faith jesus intervenes with the miraculous and touches their life and so we've seen already the woman with the issuance of blood reaches out and in faith touches the, the corner of his garment and she is healed. The four men that brought their fr paralyzed friend to Jesus in faith, 
even tearing through a roof if that's what it took to get their friend to Jesus. That friend is healed. The father who ran and found Jesus and begged him to come and touch his daughter in faith, she was healed. And now you have these two blind men who approach the Lord and they cry out for mercy and faith. And these guys here, they too are healed. According to your faith be it done unto you. The same truth continues to apply to this day. And so can Christ heal your marriage and that negative relationship you have with your spouse? Can he do that? Can Christ deliver you from that habit, that sin that just seems to have its chains binding you? Can Christ open up your unbelieving friend or family member's heart? Well, let me ask you, can he? You see, because the answer really is, according to your faith, be it done unto you. Do you believe that he is able to heal your marriage? Do you believe that he is able to open up your friend's heart? Do you believe that he's able to to touch? Do you trust in the fact that he is willing? In another place, Jesus said this. He said, all things are possible for the one who believes. Now you hear that and you think, man, I sure wish I had faith like that. And last week I said, well, look at the guy who said, I I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. You know, what's the secret there? Well, the secret is ask. If you don't have enough faith, ask for more faith and let God do that work within your heart. But can I share another verse with you that I think would be an encouragement to you as well and to us as a body of believers? As a group of people that desire to see the Lord do great works in our day and in our community, let me share this verse with you. It's from Romans chapter 10, verse 17. It says this, So then faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Do you want to build your ability to trust through all of life's circumstances? Well, ask the Lord to increase your faith. We saw that last week. And get into the word of God. Because faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. This past Wednesday night, we gathered together for our midweek study. We were doing Genesis chapter 22. And we were looking at the story of Abraham, who was asked to offer up his son Isaac. And it was during the process of this event that Isaac, who's not a little baby, but probably a grown man, uh, old enough certainly to reason and speak, Isaac says to his father, he says, Father, here's the wood and here's the fire, but where's the sacrifice? We're going on this long journey up to the top of this hill, and we didn't bring an animal with us here. What's the plan, Dad? He says to him, And his dad responds, Abraham responds, he says, the Lord will provide himself a sacrifice. And as we continue to read through that account, that story in Genesis 22, we see that that is exactly what God does. As Abraham lifts up his head in prayer, it says he hears behind him that there's a ram that is caught in the bushes there. And he goes and he takes that animal and he sacrifices that animal. Now, here's why I bring it up in the context of our study this morning is because at the very end of that passage, we have this statement. It said, so Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Now, that's a Hebrew idiom. I don't know if it's in use today, really, uh, amongst the Jews or people in Israel or anything like that. But it's a pretty cool statement here. It's a Hebrew idiom. And it became a phrase that one person of faith would say to another person of faith to encourage them to continue on in their faith. And so, you know, let me break it down this way. So you got all these bills and you're thinking, you know, I just don't know. I don't know how we're going to pay all these bills here. And somebody came to you and they say, look, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. That would be spoken into your life as an encouragement because Abraham didn't know how the Lord would provide. 
merely that God would. And so we trusted that. And what did God do? God provided. Isaac, there, observing this, learned that lesson. And so when Isaac was faced with similar opportunities to trust, even though the circumstances didn't seem too favorable for him, Isaac then taught other people to trust in those circumstances, and so on, and so on, and so on, so that here we are 4,000 years later, and we're reading their story and taking away from them the lesson that the Lord can be trusted, and that on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And what's that do? That strengthens our faith. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of the Lord. If you want to build up your faith, get into the word daily. Study it regularly with others. Sit with the word. Digest the word. Discuss it. And allow your faith to be strengthened by it. That's how you build your faith. You ask the Lord to do it. You study the word. And then I would also say you sort of build up your muscles by exercising faith. Take steps of faith. And God will build up your faith muscles, if you will. Now, we continue on. We saw previously it was according to, To their faith, these men are healed. It says, and their eyes were open. Now, Jesus sternly warns them not to make mention of this. And I'm not really sure how on earth Jesus expected that they wouldn't make mention of this. These were blind men who now could see. Somebody's certainly going to say, aren't you that guy? You know, weren't you blind yesterday or something like that? But this is not the first time that Jesus told a person not to broadcast the miraculous healing work that he had done. Jesus is not saying you got to keep this secret from your wife or something like that to these guys and, and pretend that you're blind or whatever because I don't want anyone to know or whatever. His point is don't go out on the street corner and draw attention to this. And the reason is, as we've said back then, is this. It's because though Jesus healed, his was not a healing ministry. That's not what he was about. That was not the reason why he had come. Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many as it says in Mark chapter 10. And so he tells these guys, look, don't go broadcast that. That's really not what I'm about and what I'm interested in. What I'm interested in is coming and showing people how they can have eternal life and being healed eternally, spiritually. Now, not surprisingly, verse 31, we read that these guys weren't obedient to follow that instruction. I don't think we could blame them, but it says they went away and they spread his fame throughout all the district. And again, it's kind of hard to blame them for doing so. But I do find it ironic that we as his children are told to go and tell everybody what he has done in our lives, and we don't. And these guys are told, don't tell anybody, and they do. You know, we kind of got to flip this around a little bit, and we need to be a little more obedient to his command to go and to proclaim the gospel into all the world here. But anyway, these guys were, they were telling everybody. Well, let's continue. Verse 32, the busy day continues. It says, as they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute, was brought to Jesus. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He cast out demons by the prince of demons. Well, Jesus now, he and his disciples, they encounter the next interruption. This time it's a demon-possessed man. Notice it also says in verse 32, whom the text says he was mute. Now, the two things not specifically stated in this text, but we can deduce them because they are clearly implied, is this. First, is not only is this man oppressed by a demon, but based on the fact that when it says that he was cast out, 
and then his tongue was loosened, we could also deduce that this man was possessed by a demon. That is, that a demon actually indwelt this man. Secondly, based on the fact that his tongue was loosened when the demon was cast out, I think we can accurately assume that it was the demon that was causing this man to be mute. And so you have a demon-possessed man that is, has been caused to be unable to speak because of the demon. And so you can imagine the stir when Jesus heals the guy, cast out the demon, and the guy standing there who maybe had never spoken or, or spoken or it's been such a long time since he has spoken, finally the guy says, that's amazing. And everyone's like, that's amazing, or whatever. And you have one of these scenarios here. Notice what it says then in verse 33. It says, the crowds marveled. It goes on to say that they say, we have never seen anything like this before. Now, a key reason, I think all of us, we would be a little amazed by that. Like, that's amazing, or whatever. I think I'd be more amazed, though, by the little girl that got up and rose from the dead. And I think that's what I would say. I've never seen anything like this before about that. Well, let me try to help you understand a little bit why they are so amazed, in particular, by this particular healing. First off is this is the common teaching of the day from the Jewish religious leaders of that particular day is that step number one in casting a demon out of a person, we'll use the term exorcism. Step number one in an exorcism is to find out the name of the demon so you can address it by name. Okay, that's step number one. Now, it's the smart demon who attacks the person by making them unable to speak because then... They can never give their name, and they're safe. They can just coast on by. Now, this is not biblical, what I'm saying to you. This is the common idea of the day. And so here now is Jesus, and everybody thinks this poor guy is certainly oppressed by something, but we'll never know because he can't speak. And if he can't speak, we'll never get that name out of him. And we can never get that name out of him. We can never say, James, John, Joseph, you come out of there right now. Or you know how moms yell at you with the fool three names that they gave you or whatever they can never do something like that and so this poor guy and you just sort of leave it like that now here's jesus he comes on the scene doesn't know the demon's name and he just simply casts the demon out of the person and so the people marvel because jesus is able to do something that all the other rabbis which is really jesus just one of the rabbis a new one on the scene all the other rabbis could not do jesus does and so they marvel, but not everybody marvels. Look at verse 34. The Pharisees, they don't marvel. Instead, they grumble. And they say, yeah, he cast out demons by the prince of demons. Or you might say, they, they're saying, yeah, Satan is who's empowering him to do this. And earlier I talked about spiritual blindness. This is spiritual blindness. It's right there in front of you. Everybody else can see it, but they can't see it. It's their hard-heartedness, the hard-heartedness of the Pharisees. It's refusing to let them acknowledge that there is someone in their midst that is greater than them. Could this be God's Messiah? I wonder even if their pride is wounded a little. You know, because here people are saying, we've never seen anything like this. The, the, the point being, you rabbis, you're kind of run-of-the-mill folks. This guy, he's something else. And they get offended by that, it seems. And so... They, rather than believing in Christ, they come up with this idea. And I wrote in my, my notes here, they come up with a cockamamie idea. Do you know cockamamie is a real word? I just saw, you know, people just throwing letters together or whatever. We had a discussion about this word in the office here. It's a real word. 
they come up with a cockamamie idea that Jesus was casting out demons by the power of demons. And I, I wrote in my notes, really? That's the best you got, you know, with your argument here? Now, it's not provided for us here, but Jesus will get into it with, this, with them over this statement here. Mark is the one who tells us that. And in Mark chapter 3, we read this. Jesus stops, he confronts them on this one. He says, how can Satan cast out Satan? He says, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom can't stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And then he says, and if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, well, then he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. Now, more often than not, Jesus lets statements like this just sort of roll off his back. And he, he sort of gave, gave him a look like, yeah, I, I don't know what he did, but that's what I would do. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, he gave him one of these looks or whatever. And then he just kind of went on with what he was doing here. And so if you were a good observer, you were like, Jesus didn't agree with that. All right. Anyway, he went on. Let's hear what he has to say. This time, however, Jesus stops. And he said, no, no, oh, oh, we're going to deal with this one. And so he stops and he addresses them. And essentially he's, he says, why would Satan cast out Satan? He asks him, if you will, this question. Now he goes on to say, verse 28 of Mark, he says, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. And whatever blasphemies they utter, but, blasph but whoever blasphemes the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, he says, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they he had said he has an unclean spirit. And I think this is part of the reason why in this instance, Jesus stops and he confronts them. The reason being is because they are dangerously close if they have not already done so, committing the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Now you hear that and you're like, well, what does that mean? Well, let me break it this way down. Let me go back to the beginning, if you will. What is the ministry of the Holy Spirit? The ministry of the Holy Spirit, Jesus tells us in John chapter 16, is to testify of Jesus Christ. John the Baptist would say in another place that the Son of Man is lifted up. I, I think it was somebody else said it. If the Son of Man is lifted up, all will be drawn to him. And that's the ministry of the Holy Spirit, is to lift up the name of Christ. It's to lift up the cross of Christ. And in doing so, all are drawn to that. And so Jesus said in John 16, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For, excuse me, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And so for them to declare then that the work of Christ is actually the work of a demon is to call the Holy Spirit a liar. And that's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Now that could come in the form of announcing that the work of Christ is actually being wor work that is being done by demons, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, or more likely it will come in the form that it occurs each day, day in and day out. And that is that as the Holy Spirit testifies to people that Jesus is the Christ that was sent into the world to take away the sins of the world, people that reject that essentially are calling the Holy Spirit a liar. And so when a person, you maybe, share in a person's life, you're like, look, Christ came into the world to set you free from your sin, both the power of it and the penalty of it, so that you could begin a relationship with Christ. And then they say to you, ah, I want to hear that. What they're saying is, the Holy, you're lying. And the Holy Spirit is testifying you uh, through you is lying. And that's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. 
And to blaspheme the Holy Spirit, notice what it says in the verse there, that person never has forgiveness. That person in doing that commits what has been labeled as the unpardonable sin. Now, I've spoken to people in the past that have come and they've expressed concerns that perhaps they have committed the unpardonable sin. And it's in response to that, have I committed the unpardonable sin? It's in response to that that I typically say something like this. Look, if the f- by the fact that you are worried as to whether you committed the unpardonable sin, you probably have not committed the unpardonable sin. Because if you did commit the unpardonable sin, your heart would be so hardened over, you wouldn't even care if you committed the unpardonable sin. That's the first thing I try to encourage them. By the fact you're worried about it is you're probably in a good place. Well, you're not in a bad place. Let's say that. Now, secondly, others will fear, will fear that I, I've committed the unpardonable sin because of some sin that I have done. And usually we kind of rank sin and there's the really bad ones. And eh, it's not so bad. You know, I shouldn't have done it, but not so bad. Well, we know the reality is all sin is sin that separates us from God. But a person will come and they'll say, you know, I did this. I committed adultery or I had an abortion or I pressured my girlfriend to have an abortion or I stole something, or I, and then all manner of sins. They'll just start listing things that they think are so terrible and so horrible. Could God ever forgive me? Perhaps I have committed the unpardonable sin. Well, let me remind you then again of Jesus' words. Because in the beginning of that passage I read in Mark, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. Some versions, King James for instance, it says that all manner of sin will be forgiven. So can Jesus heal a murderer and an adulterer? The answer is yes. Look at King David. Can Jesus heal a blasphemer that forced other people to blaspheme? Yes, the answer is yes. Look at the Apostle Paul. Can liars be forgiven? Yes, look at the Apostle Peter. Look at the patriarchs of the faith, Abraham and Jacob and others. Can Jesus heal a selfish suburban teenager? Yes, look at me. That was my story. And Jesus came in and healed me. Look around the room. Right now, look. You don't know everyone's story, but I know a lot of people's story in this room. Drug addicts in this room have been forgiven. Thieves have been forgiven. The proud and the arrogant in this room have been forgiven. Those of us in this room that struggle with and have struggled with bitterness and unforgiveness have been forgiven forgiven and in case after case of folks in this particular room that i'm looking at jesus has done and is continuing to do a transforming work in the lives of those people can jesus do it yes the only sin that is unforgivable is the rejection of the gift of salvation that is offered in the person of jesus christ now may i also add this even when a person has done that so you've shared your very best gospel message. You've been watching Ray Comfort and you got it down. And you're excited and you came and you shared that with them and they reject it. And they say, look, man, I'm just not interested in it. It doesn't do anything for me or whatever. And you, you walk away like, oh man, they committed the unpardonable sin. Even in those instances, we do not lose hope because God can change a heart at any time. And there are plenty of people, probably plenty, plenty of us in this room that have rejected, 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 and finally we said, you know what?
God, I just give up. I believe. I've been fighting it all this time. And so we don't lose hope. The only time we give up hope, if you will, is when a person draws their last breath on the earth. Because anyone that dies from this earth, having rejected the gift of salvation, suffers the consequences of rejecting that gift. But we serve a merciful God. But at the same time, we serve a just God. And so anyone that rejects the gift, that sin is unpardonable. And that person will receive the consequences of that decision eternally. That's why it's so significant that we go. What's that scripture say in the Old Testament? How shall they hear unless somebody uh, comes to bring the word? I think I, I hammered it a little bit here. you know. But how will they know unless somebody comes and tells them? That's our responsibility. Now we finish up the chapter. Verse 35 says, When Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few and therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. So finally, this day which begins all the way back in chapter 8, verse 18 of the night before, this day finally comes to a close. And the day included multiple teaching opportunities, the casting out of demons from a number of different people, a death-defying boat ride, the healing of a paralyzed man, a mute man, a sick woman, and a dead girl, arguments with religious leaders, and then the giving of the sight to the blind. And that is quite a day, isn't it? And you look at it, and that's an exhausting schedule. But it's one that Jesus embraced nonetheless. And I, I want to make a quick aside here before I go on with that point. Notice that verse 35, Jesus just keeps on going forward with what it is he was here to do. So here you have at the end of, I guess it's 30, he was just said that he was empowered by the prince of demons. And people criticizing his ministry, criticizing his efforts and all that, criticizing him as a person. And instead of getting down and discouraged, and instead of saying things like, nobody appreciates me, nobody understands me, or things like that, Jesus ignores that unfair criticism and he just keeps doing what he is supposed to be doing. And he goes throughout all of their cities and all of their villages. I think that's significant. Chances are, at some point in time or another, somebody's going to critique what it is that you're doing for ministry or whatever it may be, or criticize you, or yeah, you only do that because you want everyone, uh, whatever. And they, and they make these statements about you. Just keep doing what you're supposed to be doing. Don't let it stop you. And so he does that. Jesus does that. As it says in verse 35, he went through all the cities and villages. Now, all of the events that we've looked at in the last part of chapter 8 and chapter 9 were taking place, right, basically, the city of Capernaum. You have the scene where they take the boat ride, they go across the river, uh, the sea, and they come back. But it's all happening in Capernaum. Capernaum is one village of the Galilee region. There were close to 200 villages in the Galilee region. And so Jesus has left Capernaum. Now this statement says he's going throughout all the cities and villages scattered around the Galilee region there. And that's where Jesus would spend the vast majority of his ministry time, really the vast majority of his entire life is up there in the Galilee region. And it was a busy three years. Imagine trying to hit 200 villages. 
and doing ministry in each of those villages. It's going to be a real challenge. And it was a busy uh, three years for the Lord. Now, we might look at that and we're like, yeah, well, he's God. Yeah, he can do that. I don't think I could keep that kind of schedule. I would suggest this to you. Sure you could. You really could. It's amazing what we can do if our heart is in something, right? There are stories of people. You know, there's a story of a guy who was changing the car, uh, the tire on his car. And he had the car up on a jack and, and something happened and the jack got kind of dislodged and the car without a tire on it came crashing down. And it came down on his kid. And his little four-year-old kid who's kind of playing under there like he's a mechanic also or whatever is lying underneath of this car that is on him. And there's stories of people that go down and they pick up the car. You can't pick up a car. I don't care how strong you are. You can't pick up a car. But you can, if the adrenaline kicks in and your heart is prompted and motivated to pick up the car, you can do so. And when your little kid's lying under there, you'd be surprised the supernatural power that you suddenly find. And so there's a lot of things you can do if your heart is into it. And so Jesus has this frenetic pace. But notice what's prompting the heart of Christ. Notice his motivation. Notice what keeps him moving forward. It's in verse 26. It says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were, like, they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. It says he had compassion on them. King James says it this way, that he was moved with compassion. This is not the first time that Jesus saw the crowds and was moved with compassion. The first time Jesus saw the crowd and was moved with compassion was when he was in heaven. And he looked down and he saw the need of man. And he was moved to go and do something about it. The word that is used here, we have it moved with compassion. It's actually one word in the Greek language. As a matter of fact, it wasn't even a word in the Greek language until the gospel itself was written. It's a word which is meant to express the strongest form of pity in the Greek language. And as the gospel writers were trying to communicate what they were trying to say, there was no word available for them, so they made up a word that would describe what they were trying to describe, that he was moved with compassion. Let me explain how that word came about. Have you ever said this? Now, hopefully not as an adult. Maybe as a kid, I used to say this when I was so mad. My mom, I know when she's really mad, we don't get her that mad anymore. But when my mom was really, really mad, she would say, it just burns me up. And we were all like, oh boy, mom's burned up. All right. And so we knew mom was angry. Mom was really mad. When I was really mad as a kid, I would say something like this, I hate your guts, or I hate you with all of my guts. We had a debate, what's the proper way to say it? It's been so long, I forget. But you could probably say both. I hate you with all my guts, or I hate your guts. The idea is, from the deepest part of either your being or my being, hate is involved, and I can't stand you. And I remember playing kickball right out in front of my house, and my cousin, she just wasn't that good at kickball. And it was unacceptable. It was unacceptable for me. As a six-year-old, finally, I had had it. And I ran out there. I finally, I hate your guts, and I'm choking her. And everyone's like, leave her alone, or whatever. And I'm like, this game's important, or whatever. <laughs> so anyhow, if you've ever said something like that, then you have an idea of what the gospel writers are trying to communicate. It's to be moved at the deepest part of your being. And so... You could say, it's weird, but you could say Jesus loves you with all of his guts. Because the idea, don't, it's weird, don't put that on a sticker <laughs> or something. The point is that God so loved the world 
that he was moved to action, as it says in John chapter 3.16. The point is that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He was moved to action. The point is because we were people desperately in need of a Savior, that Jesus was moved to action, he humbled himself, and he became obedient, even to the point of death on a cross. That's the point, that his heart and our condition was blended together, creating in him a compassion that moved him to action, to come and to die in our place. And so seeing the multitude, seeing the crowds, it says, like sheep without a shepherd, seeing the crowds at great risk of imminent destruction, Jesus' heart breaks for them and he responds. You know what sheep without a shepherd quickly become? Dead sheep is what they quickly become. And that moved the heart of the Lord. And his heart broke for us. We're the dead sheep, or soon to be dead sheep. And his heart broke for us. And so I wonder today, here we are, we're sitting on the other side, most of us. Jesus has come and he saved us. He's rescued us. We've been forgiven of our sins. We're on the other side, if you will, of the danger. Do we look at those that are back on the other side and does our heart break for them as his heart broke for ours? And does our heart break for them as his heart now currently breaks for them? Does our heart as a church really break for the lost? I wonder. I have to be totally honest with you. My heart is sorrowful for the lost. I feel bad for the lost. I, I, I feel, man, that's unfortunate that there are some that aren't going to go to heaven when they die. But I'm not sure my heart breaks yet for the lost. And I'm not sure our heart as a church breaks for the lost. But I've been praying that it would. And so if you start noticing that is the case, you can blame me. Because I've been praying that God would do that in each of us. That he would move, uh, we, he would break our heart so much so that it moves us to action. That we would do whatever it possibly takes to bring as many as we possibly can along with us into the kingdom of heaven. We know this, that it is the will of God that no one would perish. Second Peter tells us that not wishing that any would perish, the scripture says. Is that our will? Is that our heart? for the lost. Let's pray that it would be. Now, the closing words of Jesus found in verse 37, he said then his, he said to his disciples, "The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest." The harvest is plentiful. Another version says the the harvest is ready. Just get out there and pick. When I was a kid, I grew up on a farm, and one of the things they wouldn't let me pick were eggplant because if you, if you go up to pull an eggplant, you can pull the whole plant out of the ground. And so they wouldn't let me go do it. The farmer himself said, I'll take care of that myself. You'll ruin all my eggplant plants or whatever. But if you waited long enough, the eggplant itself would just fall off of the thing. It probably wouldn't be any good at that particular point. And so from time to time, we were a little behind in our picking. And he would say, you can go pick the eggplant. I'd be like, really? I get to pick the eggplant? You're like, yeah, weirdo, get out there and pick the eggplant or whatever, because it was going to fall off of the vine anyway here. That's the idea when it says that the harvest is ready. There are people ready to come to Christ. That's the scripture says. You don't have to convince them. You don't have to debate them into the kingdom or whatever. They are ready to, for the picking. And your responsibility is just to go to them. 
And so it's like a fishing line or a fishing net. We're switching all kinds of metaphors here. But you just sort of cast it out there and see what you catch. There's people that are ready. The harvest is plentiful. The harvest is ready. But the laborers are few. So pray earnestly for the Lord to send out laborers into the harvest. I haven't given you homework in a a while. It's been, hasn't it? I used to do that regularly. Back when I was teaching, I was sort of in the flow of make sure you give kids homework. If you're going to be miserable, they're going to be miserable. You know, so you give out lots of homework. I haven't given homework out here to the crowd much, so we're going to give you some homework. Your homework for this week is to pray earnestly for the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. That's not so hard, is it? Friends? Come on, guys. No. And then you're like, oh. No, it's not so hard. Yes. It's not so hard. Pray. Pray that the Lord would send out laborers. But I want to warn you of one thing. Just for a moment. We're going to talk about it next week. Look at chapter 10, verse 1. It says, And he called to him his 12 disciples, and basically he sent them out into the harvest. And so if you pray earnestly for God to send someone into the harvest, it's very likely that he will move your heart to go out into the harvest. Now, some of you would think, well, then I ain't praying or whatever. No, no, you, you want God to move your heart because then that would be the joy of your life to go do that. Amen? So that's your homework. Pray earnestly. Let's pray now. Father, thank you for my friends here. Lord, what a pleasure to be able to share life with these guys, Lord. In some cases, Lord, we're growing old together. And we rejoice in that truth, Lord, because you've brought us together and you've knit our hearts together and you've made us one body of believers. And you've given us a harvest field, a field out there of people that we come in contact with at the grocery store and at work and as we're walking the dog, family members and friends, and when we go off to class and school. Lord, you've You've given us a field, if you will, for us to interact with. And so, Father, we want to pray, Lord, that you would move in our hearts in such a way to share the words of eternal life, Lord, to live, Lord, with the joy, with our eyes firmly fixed on heaven. Lord, as it speaks about in Peter, when people are drawn to that and they ask us for the reason for the hope that is within us, Lord, that we would, with a great joy, respond without any hesitation without watering it down in any way that we would just gladly respond this is what god did in my life and he can do it in your life do you want him to do it right now and lord we believe your word that as we sort of cast out that net that people would be swallowed up in it would somebody faithfully shared with us and because of that we're here this day and lord we're praying the same for those that we come in contact with as well Thank you for your word. Thank you for the encouragement of this scripture. Lord, we pray that you would increase our faith, even when it's uh, just a little faith. Use that little faith, certainly, but build up our faith that we might step out in faith. And we pray our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone.